I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, thrilled to be broadcasting in New York City and in Washington, D.C. And if you are listening on WBI in New York City or um, in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I hope and implore you to, uh, to support those radio stations and thank them for carrying this program, a program Probably like no other. I, I know, look, I know there are other native broadcasters, but it is clear that, that I take a path that's a little bit um, more resistant, I guess, uh, pushes back a little bit more than um, probably any other uh, radio program. I, look, I know there's, there's probably some really tough-talking podcasts, and, and I think this is one of those as well. But, uh, but to be on the air in New York City and Washington, D.C., and supported by... These two Pacific stations, uh, WBAI and uh, WPFW, is is really uh, quite amazing, and and I, you know, I can't express how much I appreciate having the airtime. Um, so again, I ask you that you support those two radio stations. You can go online. You can uh, uh, call their pledge line. The pledge line for WBAI is two one two two zero nine two nine five zero, and for uh, WPFW, it's two zero two five eight eight. Nine seven three nine. So uh, please do support these two uh, radio stations and thank them for carrying this program. All right. So you know, it's always a challenge every week. You never share, never sure what topic I'm going to talk about. There are some topics that I think are fairly um, reoccurring, and uh, I feel compelled to to drive them home um, and give you know continuous updates. And you know, I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, I'm really going to drive home the issue that that we reject the notion of being wards of the state, something that has been cast upon us in, in many ways. And I'm not going to reiterate all of that this week, but I've got to talk about something that, uh, that's related to that. So here's the deal. I, I utilize social media, and, uh, and as a part of being on social media, I, the algorithms as they're set up sometimes feeds me a lot of um, uh, posts that may or may not have meaningful native content. Well, one of the things that, that if, if you listen to this program at all, you know that I, that I you know, speak out against um, not only the use of native mascots, but, but the way we are representative in the dom- represented in the dominant culture. And one of the things that I find problematic are things like putting us on your coins and on your dollars. And there's been a lot of talk about, well, should native people be on... You, you know, on, should a Native woman be on the, the $20 bill or something like that? And, and of course, we have been uh, stamped into uh, coinage for, for quite some time. Look, there's, there's old, old coins with Native imagery on it, uh, you know, pennies and nickels and, uh, you know, uh, silver dollars, the whole bit. But even now, uh, the, these Sacagawea dollars, uh, uh, not only do they have Sacagawea on it, they they've got uh, other you know alternating uh, imagery on the back. Well, one of the ones that I saw this week, 
And and it, in a way, it makes me talk about this a little prematurely. But uh, what I saw this week was one that was stamped, um, that was commemorating the Indian Citizenship Act. We are coming upon, and it's not really till June, but we are coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act. And, and I've got to talk about this because this is so misrepresented, including by Native people. I mean, and i got to tell you, there's, there's nothing more frustrating to me than to hear a Native person say, well, we didn't become U.S. citizens until 1924. Well, did we? I mean, did we? So if there's, I mean, I guess to, to raise the question, let me just read the text of the actual, um, it's, it's really a declaration. It says, and this is June 2nd, 1924, be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that, uh, that all non -in non-citizen Indians born within the, uh, uh, territorial limits of the U.S. be and they are hereby declared to be the citizens of the United States. Then there's a little bit of a proviso. It says, provided that the granting of such citizenship shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian to tribal or other property. All right, so... It really isn't a granting. It, 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 this isn't a granting of U.S. citizenship. It's a declaration. It is an imposition. There's no, this wasn't a pathway to citizenship. This was the Senate and the Congress just declaring it. Now, it, this, this act's got a couple of different names. One of the, it's also called the Snyder Act because the congressman who introduced this bill was from New York. Not Oklahoma, where you might expect. You know, not uh, you know some other place, but this is 1924. A congressman from New York introduces this bill, and it ultimately, you know, I, it, you know, 100 years ago today, it was probably being uh, you know chewed up by by staffers. But uh, you know, come June, it will be the 100th anniversary of this imposition. Now, just to be clear, when I saw this post, and it was it was. Um, I don't know why I would get a U.S. Mint um, uh, postings on my page, but I, again, native connection, I guess, and, and that's the way the algorithms work on Facebook, I guess. And what it said on there, it said, honoring Indian tribes and Native Americans. Well, for one thing, if you want to honor me, don't call me an Indian tribe or a Native American. That's, that's one place to start. But the other thing is, don't commemorate an act of genocide. Let me be clear. Declaring us to be U.S. citizens without having a process, and and I gotta, let me back up a little bit, I guess, because what is said in the um, uh, in in this law was that the this law was authorizing the Secretary of the Interior to issue certificates of citizenship to us. Well, they didn't. This declaration just went almost like this unilateral declaration, and there were no citizens certificates issued i mean i don't have one. i don't certainly don't have one my parents that did have one i don't know anybody i don't know anybody who can hand me and and i'm sure some of these exist but for the most part this was not this wholesale uh bureaucratic bureaucratic process where the interior department issued every native person in the country at that time certificates of citizenship it didn't happen 
I'm telling you, it didn't happen. And, and it didn't happen for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is we rejected it. I mean, we, I'm not saying there weren't some Native people who were requiring or, or asking or pursuing um, U.S. citizenship. In fact, the act specifically says um, all non-citizen Indians. So the assumption was that there already were some. But the question is, what were we then? Before this act, what were Native people? I mean, if, if the, the few who may have been citizens because they served in the military or, or did something that, you know, granted them some designation. Now, and that designation would not have come from the Interior Department. That's a, this is a State Department issue. I don't, you know, I don't know who, I don't, I don't know what agency, you know, grants uh, citizenship at this point, but I'm pretty sure it's not the Interior Department. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe. Um, so what were we? Well, I'll tell you what we were. We were already a distinct people. Now, we can argue whether the, the term citizenship and nation were the, the most accurate descriptions of who we were, nations or, or nations. But we clearly were a distinct people, distinct from the United States. Now, this was in 1924. To, to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about here is the 14th Amendment which was passed in, uh, I don't have the date right in front of me, I think 1865, I guess, which was a, uh, an act that, that cleared up the slavery question, right? But see, even that one, it says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens. That's the 14th Amendment. So, that didn't include us. Why didn't it include us? Well, for one thing, that, that line that said um, naturalized um, in the United States, or you know, our lands weren't necessarily considered the United States. But the other thing is subject to the jurisdiction. Well, there was, it was clear that we weren't, in, in, certainly in 1865. So because we weren't being included as citizens with or without our consent, even then in 1865, they passed this law in, in 1924. But, it, but again, it doesn't ask us. It says that the, the, that the Senate and the House of Representatives declared this. And it doesn't even suggest that it was done upon request by any Native people. And there's also a provision in there that says this, is, this granting um, is provided that, uh, that no, um, not in any manner shall... Uh, our property or our rights to our property be uh, infringed upon or uh, impaired or um, or otherwise affected. And clearly, the United States has done nothing but consistently impair and infringe and otherwise affect our rights to our property, including our lands and what we do on our lands. So this law, in fact, look, before the word genocide became um, this international you know, um, war crime that was so clearly defined by, its, you know, by the idea of killing people and, uh, and you know, uh, uh, performing physical harm or creating conditions uh, that would, would uh, intended uh, to destroy us as a people, a distinct people, or, you know, or, or to uh, sterilize our women or, or take our children, all those things being the definition of genocide, before that definition, before that word, 
The international community was already calling denationalization a war crime. And what denationalization was, was, was the notion of stripping away somebody's national character or, or cultural standing, stri stripping away somebody's identity as a distinct people, and then imposing another national character upon them. And of course, let's not forget where we got cast into that hierarchy of U.S. citizenship, right down there at the bottom, right down there at the bottom. I mean, it, it, it's ironic that if you're going to say, well, look at that, they granted Native people citizenship. The last people, the first people of the, of the continent become the last people, you know, um, awarded or afforded this, this wonderful opportunity. Well, we didn't see it that way. We didn't see this as an opportunity. We saw this as an imposition, and many of us still do. Now, I will say, in 100 years, it's incredible just how much this whole idea has been transformed. Because, look, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm an outlier. The vast majority of Native people embrace or accept or acknowledge or submit to this notion of being a U.S. citizen. They don't know that they have a choice. They don't realize that they, they have a choice in this matter. And we lose nothing by maintaining our distinction. Because the United States can't strip away rights from us because we won't accept the, the, the citizenship that they're trying to impose upon us. They can't. I mean, look, if we vote in their elections, then, we, then we're accepting their citizenship. So, yes, if you're voting in U.S. elections, you are accepting this imposition. You are accepting, or this gift, I guess, if you want to call it this, this granting of U.S. citizenship. You are acknowledging that the United States has effectively altered your identity to the extent that you now are an American citizen, a U.S. citizen. Now, I've, I, in some of these posts, uh, I saw people say, well, this, the Indian Citizenship Act um, allowed Native people to exist uh, with dual citizenship. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say anything in this act that suggests that the United States would ever to continue to recognize our citizenship of both our indigenous cultures, our original nations, and U.S. citizenship. It, it just strips it away. It replaces it. It strips it away and imposes it. It replaces our national character with theirs. That's what it does. And it was a war crime. Denationalization was considered a war crime. Now, look, neither denationalization nor genocide were ever developed to, um, to characterize what happened to Native people. It was always about Europeans. So let's be clear. All this talk about denationalization and genocide was always about the conflicts in Europe. It was about ethnic cleansing and all the stuff that was happening. It wasn't even about what, what the Europeans were doing to Africa. No, it was about what Europeans were doing to each other. So it was about white people. It was always about white people. But the fact of the matter is when you, when you put this stuff in language and then you, you make an international document and then you talk about the Declaration of Human Rights and all that other stuff, it is, it's really clear that, that um, it must apply to us because we're human beings. Now, just to be clear, I want to mention one thing because I can't talk about what happens with Native people in the U.S. without talking about what happens in Canada. In Canada, they passed their Canadian Citizenship Act in 1947. Native people weren't included in that. Almost a decade later, they said, 
geez, we better say something about the, the vast majority of Native population that lives on the Canadian side. So in um, 1956, they tried to, they, they included Native people in Canadian citizenship and then tried to make it retroactive. Like, uh, we're going to count your citizenship back to um, uh, 1947. It didn't happen until 1956, but they tried to backtrack it. And something, some suggest that it was, that it was a political expediency because of, frankly, the UN Declaration of the Rights of uh, Human Rights. And so they were trying to make sure that they that Native people weren't excluded from that declaration, um, the International Declaration, which we we clearly were because they, they had to post date this like sending a post dated check, right? So no, it's uh, it's it, it's kind of crazy here. So. The, the irony is what U.S. and Canada have done in terms of trying to define us as theirs. Now, as I said, it is clear that we weren't included in the 14th Amendment. Now, I also want to mention something about the 14th Amendment because that if, for those who aren't familiar, this is where the Equal Protection Clause is always talked about, and, and that's not real clear. But what, basically what they're saying is that, that all citizens are, are protected equally within the uh, um, within the law, and that's part of the, the 14th Amendment. And, and again, it's supposed to be uh, to, to stamp out, you know, racism, and, you know, which it, it clearly did not do, <laughs> especially in 1865. Um, but it's ironic that when I talked about the Indian child welfare case, you know, and I talk about that from time to time, one of the things that these rich white folks were trying to do was claim that they were being violated the equal protection uh, under the, that the Indian Child Welfare Act was, um, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution, meaning the 14th Amendment. And, and it goes on because it's, it's basically saying that uh, uh, white people can't, you know, can't own Native children uh, w without the federal government somehow giving them permission. So it's, I mean, you can't really make this stuff up. It's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. But, you know, I, again, I wanted to, part of the whole thing with, with talking about the Indian Citizenship Act is that so many Native people have almost accepted this. And, and they accept it to the point that, um, that they say things that are inaccurate. Like I said, oh, we, we, we didn't become citizens until 1924. Well, I mean, there's some technical truth to that, but the fact of the matter is they imposed it upon Native people. They, they flat out just made a declaration that we were hereby U.S. citizens. And... And as far as the, the, the details of how the law was supposed to be administered, most of that never happened. There weren't, like I said, there was not this wholesale issuance of uh, citizen certificates by the Interior Department. And, and I dare say, Deb Hallin better not try it either. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine her all of a sudden saying, well, I need to account for every Native person in the United States and issue them um, citizenship documents uh, because there be there will be some pushback. Not from everybody. And look, I, I have to say this because I understand that many Native people, I'm not saying the vast majority, but many Native people have found success within the, the system, the capitalist system, the, the social order system of the United States, uh, at least success as defined by, you know, U.S. culture. I mean, financial success, perhaps. And much of that success would be impossible if they didn't submit 
to U.S. citizens. You, I mean, you couldn't be a doctor in the United States. A native person couldn't be a doctor unless he accepts U.S. citizenship. We can't travel. We can't go to another country without accepting U.S. citizenship because they want us to have a U.S. passport or a Canadian passport. I mean, they, they won't allow us to issue our own travel documents. And, and we have tried. I mean, look, the Haudenosaunee has their own passports, and they are by and large considered fraudulent documents fake documents by the, you know, by the international community. It doesn't matter how many people voted for the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There isn't anything in that de- declaration, by the way, that um, asserts our right to create our own travel documents. It, it, it ignores that completely. And of course, having said that, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is pretty clear in that that declaration is the minimum standard for dignity and survival. It's not... It is not the utopian document that all of a sudden gives us, you know, something we, you know, you know, props us up somehow. It doesn't. It tells, it's supposed to tell nation states that these are the things that you can't do to them. And of course, most nations, including the United States and Canada, just thumb their nose up at it. They, they stand in stark violation of that. And the notion that somebody would po- put a post up there and, and commemorate this act of genocide and coinage and promote it as something as an as this act that honored us it didn't it doesn't and in fact we are in a constant struggle every single day in asserting our sovereignty and it gets me it gets muddled because on one hand can we be u.s citizens yes we absolutely can can we vote in u.s uh, u.s elections yes we can Can we serve in their military? Yes, we can. Can we get a U.S. passport? Yeah, we can. (laughs) We can. But in doing so, what did we give up? In every one of those instances, we gave up a piece, if not all, of our autonomy. I would argue all. Because once you've said that I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm going to kill for you, I'm going to vote for you, I'm going to travel with your flag on my back. I don't know how you maintain, other than some sort of ethnic tag, I don't know how you call yourself a citizen. And you hear it all the time. Oh, yeah, such and such. I mean, I heard it when they were talking about this new judge that got appointed. Oh, that she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Is she? Really? Does the United States recognize that? Or is it just lip service? I mean, because... I got to tell you, that's what it sounds like to me. So when we see these pieces of legislation, and, and look, it didn't stop in 1924 because they knew they hadn't, they knew that they hadn't completed their task of trying to, to, to subject us. Well, how do I know that? Because 10 years later, ironically, that anniversary is coming up in June as well, is another law called the Indian Reorganization Act. Now, this one's under FDR. And it's called the Indian New Deal. And it's, and it's laced with all this flowery language about what it was supposed to do to help us. But at the end of the day, it diminishes our, our, our sovereignty. It, de- it defines us as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. It, it embraces us as U.S. citizens. It once again tries to subject us to the jurisdiction of the United States. It doesn't really even, even address the citizenship issue necessarily. And the crazy part is 90 years ago, 
that act didn't complete the job either. How do I know that? Because today, if we, if you are a part of a native group that is federally recognized or vying for federal recognition, and part of what you're trying to accomplish is the reclamation of lands, there, there's this stipulation in the fee to trust process that says, if you were not, if you can't prove that you were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, meaning under the Reorganization Act, if you can't prove that you weren't un- that you were not under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, you can't get land back. There's no process for you. We got nothing for you. No, no, we got nothing. That's that's how the U.S. interprets this idea of, and it goes. I'm not crazy about fee to trust because that means taking land, buying it, or acquiring it somehow that was held or that is you know has a a state deed or county deed or whatever, a U.S. deed to it, and then it gets held by the federal government for our use and enjoyment. It never actually is a full transfer of land to our, you know, in our name, to our nation's name. It never becomes a, 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 clue, a clear and absolute title. It just gets held by the federal government, in, and it, it is no longer considered, you know, the same kind of you know public lands, the same kind of uh, or private lands. It, it's lands. It becomes quote unquote Indian country. So, so even uh, you know you got the the Fourteenth Amendment in, in eighteen sixty five. You've got this uh, Indian Citizenship Act in nineteen twenty four. You got the Indian Reorganization Act in nineteen thirty four. But even today, and I mean today, I mean this is still a debated topic about how we reclaim lost lands. But even today, there is some question about whether we, all of us, any of us, who of us, I guess, were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934. It seems to me, if you believed in what your laws said, we would have all been under your jurisdiction, except for the fact that we reject it. And how did we reject it? Well, I'll tell you, we reject it in a variety of ways, not the least of which has been um, when you tried to draft us into your military force us into your, your military, even though Native people enlist at a higher rate than any other group of Native people or a, a group of people in the United States, um, there was still an effort to, um, to force your enlistment upon us. And that's where you got pushback. Look, the Indian Reorganization Act was, re, was soundly rejected by, by the Navajo, and, and frankly, the Seneca Nation and the Haudenosaunee rejected it because we had rejected the Citizenship Act 10 years before that. And... And the crazy part is, the assumption is, even though in 1924 they said nothing in that granting of citizenship was supposed to impact or affect our rights to our property. And that doesn't mean just real estate, but it certainly would include that. We have a hard time convincing people, no, we are not. Our land here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation is not part of New York State. You don't get our property. I don't care how many laws you've passed. You don't get our property. We're not a part of the county. We're not a part of the town. We're not a part of the state or the United States. And your laws even suggested that if we accepted certain things like citizenship, you still can't claim our lands. But with the Indian Reorganization Act, they tried to assert more control over our lands. And, well, see, they, they, I'll take it back. They tried to assert the authority to grant us more control over our lands. So the federal government tries to, to assert that they have the authority um, exclusive to the states. 
course, they say that as they're granting, still granting the states civil and criminal jurisdiction. So, I mean, it's a hodgepodge of stuff that just doesn't make any sense. But this is the world that we live in. And this is the struggle that we have. So when I talk about struggling for, uh, over identity, of course there's a struggle for identity. Look, if there are certain things that we can't even pursue in our lives because we won't accept U.S. citizenship, like I said, become a doctor or a lawyer. Of course, I don't know I'd want to be a lawyer anyway because of, all of the debacle of the justice system that exists here in the United States. I mean, it's, there are still um, restrictions. You know, and, and I got to tell you, today, if you have an 18-year-old son, he's supposed to enlist in the, uh, in the draft re registration. So Native people, it's expected that Native people will, uh, a, a boy turns 18 years old, a Native boy, not a girl, but a Native boy will register for the draft. My son didn't. I didn't, of course, I was, I think I was 10 days too old because it didn't come into effect until somebody born in 1960 and later. They had suspended the draft registration and they kicked it back in. About the time I was turning 18, because all my friends who were a little bit younger than me were, uh, all had to register, or were supposed to. But see, and the schools become a part of this. And so what does it mean if you don't? I mean, are there things that you are going to come back? Are you not going to be able to get certain... Um, grants or you know for education and that kind of stuff. and can you i mean how, what does that all mean in, in terms of getting you know education in the united states if you reject u.s citizenship well see now that stuff's real clear because if you can't afford afford to pay for it and you're denied funding to go to school funding that most people assume that all oh, native people get to go to school for free that's not true and so there's there's a lot of confusion here and of course the other thing that comes back, and, and I got to get back to the to the um, Indian Child Welfare Welfare Act challenge. If you believe that you are a U.S. citizen, and that is your primary, you know, sense of identity, and that you 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 long or you you embrace that U.S. citizenship for the protections that you're supposed to get, then where does the, the distinction lie? Because what the Brackeen family tried to do was try to say that Native people are just citizens of the United States of a distinct race or ethnicity. Not a distinct people. Not, forget about sovereignty or, or, or autonomy. or No, they're saying, so if they're going to be treated differently, that's where they go back to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Constitution and say, yeah, but that violates the Equal Protection Clause. See, this is the stuff that most Native people are never taught. And for the, for the most part, most Native people can kind of float through life and never have to feel conflicted. Look, we, we talk about cognitive dissonance. Most people aren't even affected by this because they don't think about how much they're straddling it. So you ask a Native person, are you a U.S. citizen? Most would say yes, but I got to tell you, there's a strong group and a strong contingent of Native people that if you try to call them a Canadian or an American, I wouldn't be the first one to say you better be prepared to fight because it, it's, it's offensive. I mean, that's like asking a Jew if they're, they're a Nazi. Well, maybe that's a little bit harder to say today 
uh, because of the Israel-Palestinian conflict. But, but it's still offensive, right? It's still offensive, even if there's some pretty strong comparisons there. And you know what? There's some pretty strong comparisons to the, to the average life of a Native person and an average life of an American, except our life expectancy is lower. We lead in all the, all the lists you don't want to lead in. Yeah, the average uh, life expectancy, I think, is 58 years old for a Native person. Lowest in the country. I mean, if you want to include us in the country. We have the highest suicide rate, the highest uh, substance abuse rate. We have the highest teen, teen pregnancy. We have the highest uh, of all of this stuff. Although, although I got to tell you, I, I think the teen pregnancy thing is, is, is dropping. And, uh, and I, I, I think, and I got to attribute for all the people who want to condemn our young people, I think our young people are starting to wise up. I think they're starting to say, you know what? We're not playing this game anymore. And that's my hope. My hope is that some of the things that I talk about here, and look, I know if I, on WBAI and WPFW, I'm not reaching a whole lot of young Native people. That's a, that's a whole other effort that I'm, uh, that I'm entertaining at this point, how to reach young people. Because I want to empower them. Because most of the Native people who will hear, hear this broadcast and most of the non-Native people who will just have no idea some of the things that I'm talking about, they're, they're, they're oftentimes blown away. They're not the ones who have to bear the brunt of this stuff. Our young people are. So this idea of our identities being crushed by the ongoing American genocide, that's something that, look, my generation, and I'm, I'm in my 60s now, my generation, we have learned how to navigate this thing. And most people aren't, aren't beating on the walls as hard as I am. Most people have found a comfortable way to embrace their native um, identity and let it kind of meander in and out of that U.S. or even Canadian identity. They have, and, and, and it's kind of sad, and that's why we have these, these conversations. Look, when I think about Oren Lyons going to um, the National Congress of the American Indian, uh, I don't know, I think the first time Trump was running um, and beat Clinton, I, I, I think he, he went on the record in a public statement telling people to go out and vote. That actually violates what Onondaga's ever stood for. And I have some issues with some of the positions that Onondaga has taken on some things. But so Oren Lyons stood up as an as a iconic Native figure telling Native people to vote in the elections. I mean, he was literally advocating submission to American citizenship. And not everybody was appalled by it. In, in fact, I've gotten into some pretty healthy arguments with some people who thought, well, you know, he, he didn't really mean this or he didn't really mean that. Look, it is what it is. But that's just it. We have a lot of people who, look, want to travel. And I don't condemn anybody who, you know, who wants to travel. The hard part is we're not drawing a, a hard enough line in the sand about Native people, our nations, our governments, issuing travel documents. So what do we do? We get a U.S. passport. We get a Canadian passport. And we don't even think about the implications of it. I mean, there's not even like a, you know, an under protest stamp or anything like that that we, that we, we put up on these things, you know? So, so, you know, again, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a difficult thing. Hey, look, I, there is one other thing I want to talk about because I saw this it came across my, my, uh, my uh, email and my screen on my computer and a friend of mine in New York sent me this, um, this post by Kathy Hochul, governor of the state of New York where she was boasting about the state of New York securing one, uh, $183 million 
um, for um, how did she uh, compensation? I guess is what she said for the uh, ill-gained um, loot that was taken from Jewish people during World War, you know, during the Holocaust. So, part of me immediately thinking she put up a, the state put up one hundred and eighty-three million dollars to compensate losses to Jewish people for the Holocaust. I'm thinking. The United States wasn't a part of the Holocaust, other than ignoring it. <laughs> it was in another country. It was they weren't U.S. citizens. They were they were most of them were, were were Europeans. So why is New York State doing it? Then somebody said, "Well, no, the, the United States isn't necessarily putting up the money. They they just de- um, developed uh, um, in part of their the state treasury department of some sort. Not even just the courts, but they uh, they they developed a an office for." you know, Holocaust, um, something or other, I don't know, the, the, again, to, to, to secure these losses. But she posted this as if this is something that happened during her administration. To be clear, this thing has existed since 1997. So in 27 years, a special compartment or agency or, or division of an agency in New York State has helped G- a Holocaust survivors secure, and I don't know if they've actually received this, but secure $183 million. In 27 years, that's not a whole lot of money, folks. I mean, it always sounds sensational when you see that, $183 million. But the crazy part is, I see that number, and all I'm thinking, yeah, that's about how much you you take from Native Gaming every year, Kathy Hochul. And you're, you're putting this boast out there that you're doing something for these Holocaust survivors, which the state is under no obligation. Again, what, what, was, what was told to me, yeah, but you're not understanding the state isn't putting up the money. Well, I beg your pardon. If the state has developed an agency or a division of an agency that for over 27 years has dedicated state resources to securing that compensation, to securing those losses... The state is spending money. And i got to believe, in 27 years, knowing how the state spends money, they probably spent more than they've recovered. But, but here's the part that, that, if anything, bothered me the most. Because when I first saw this thing, um, one of the speakers who was speaking over the post was, was, um, was a black activist. And they were talking about you know how the state and, and so many other parts of the United States referred to even address things like reparations. But you're going to do this for a people who aren't even U.S. citizens? For a crime that the United States wasn't involved in? Well, what about the crimes the United States was involved in, like slavery? Or genocide? You know, want to know what happened during the American Holocaust? Billions and billions of dollars were stolen from Native people. Millions of lives were destroyed or, or, or snuffed out. In New York State... I mean, in New York State, there's probably there's probably over two million. Um, uh, what, what did I say? I'm like two hundred million. Uh, no, two, there's, there's millions. I think a tenth of the state's population is uh, are Jewish. A tenth. Native people. Our population in New York State has been reduced as as far as Native people living in our lands and our own homelands. Less than twenty thousand people. Less than one tenth of one percent. That's a genocide. That's a holocaust that the United States and New York State were involved in. And there's no conversation about 
reparations. There's no conversation about um, compensation or restoration of the losses. So when I bring up something like, we're not going to talk about truth and reconciliation over the residential schools if we're not going to talk about truth and restoration. So am I just talking about dollars and cents? No, I'm not. I mean, there, have, there are all kinds of things. Look, yeah, we, we talk a lot about restoring, giving bones back and artifacts stripped from our grave sites. But what about the grave sites? What about the land? What about the millions, the billions of dollars of resources that have been stolen from us? Again, 1924, they passed the U.S. Uh, uh, the Indian Citizenship Act. That's while the Osage were being murdered. You know, that, that, that movie, the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, that's when that took, all took place, 1924, early 1920s. That's when that all took place. So while somebody is willing to cite this law or these laws or, or this, this action by the state to recover, you know, um, for, for Holocaust survivors, these, you know, these, these monies, what are you ignoring? You're ignoring far more than what you're ever doing. And again, in, in 27 years, if all New York State has been able to do is assist uh, Holocaust survivors in recovering $183 million, I don't know that I'd brag about that. In fact, I think that whole program should probably be evaluated. And I'll tell you, it's, it's incredible to me that, that New York State will spend resources for a Holocaust committed by another, on another land to another people, by another people, and ignore the Holocaust that they've committed. Ignore the role that, that New York State and the United States have played in what black people have endured and what native people have endured. And continue to endure. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the effects of racism are alive and well. There are still very, very segregated cities. I, I live near one. Buffalo, New York is close to the Cattaraugus Territory of Second Asian, one of the most segregated cities in the United States. One of the, one of the more racist. And it isn't just because a white guy shot, went there and shot up a top market. There's plenty of racism that exists uh, coming out of Buffalo. And you know where I hear it the most? And this is the craziest part. And it's so easy to, to put it on display. Just a simple discussion over mascots. The simple discussion over mascots brings out some of the most vitriolic statements out of white folks. I mean, it's, it's pretty credible. As we head into a weekend where two of the NFL teams competing in the Super Bowl, one has a native mascot where their fans show up in red face and headdress and beat drums and do tomahawk chops, and the other gets its name from the exploitation of, uh, of gold out of Native territories and the murdering of Native people. So you got the 49ers who killed thousands and thousands of Native people in their, in their endeavor to, to steal their gold. And the other is, is a team that, because, because of a crazy reason for choosing the name Chiefs, now just brandished this Native identity and, and mockery in a way that is just almost, you know, nauseating. This is where it's so easy to flesh out the racism that still exists today. And you know what? With no 
I mean, there's no conscience here. And, and so when you get Kathy Hochul willing to brag about what they're doing for, for Holocaust survivors on Facebook, no less, like she deserves credit. Almost not, uh, By the way, almost nothing has happened since she's been the governor in this regard. Most of the money is, was recovered uh, over the last 27 years, not in the last couple of years, but prior to her. So she's bragging about this. I don't know if somebody just put a document in front of her one day and she decided, oh, this is worth patting myself on the back for as if I did something. And of course, all this comes now at a time where, and I'm not trying to you know, stir up or, or promote anti-Semitism, but we, we're, we're caught in this battle over how do we acknowledge the wrongs that were committed against Jewish people during the Holocaust without funding another one where, it is, where the state of Israel is, doing, is committing almost, in many ways, worse atrocities to the Palestinians than the Nazis did to them. I don't know. This is the crazy world that we live in. This is the crazy world that we live in. So, I mean, I, I wanted to bring up this, and I'm going to talk more about this citizenship act as we come upon, again, 100th anniversary. This June, it'll be 100 years. And I got to tell you, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to say it again. It's amazing how effective the, you know, the marketing of this U.S. citizenship has been. And how pervasive it is amongst Native people. You would be hard-pressed to find that many Native people who will flat out say, oh, hell no, I'm not a U.S. citizen. Most will embrace it. Most will embrace it, I'm telling you. And that's kind of sad. Look, and I'm not condemning U.S. citizenship for U.S. citizens. I just think as, as Native people, we, we stand to gain much more from our autonomy and our distinction by melting in their melting pot. I just don't think there's any value in occupying the lowest rung of the citizenship hierarchy of the United States. And that's all we, I'm not saying there aren't some people who've made it. You know, now all of a sudden we, you know, we're, we're all supposed to be thrilled that, you know, a few native people are making it into, into, into making it in Hollywood or making it on television or on streaming services. It seems like it's the same six guys or same six people, which is a, a bit strange. And I'm not condemning those six people. I just don't know how it became such an exclusive club because there's quite a few native people to choose from. And there's a lot of native actresses and performers and that kind of stuff. But it's the same six or seven people who are occupying all these spaces and, and you know, and, you know, good for them. Not so good for any other Native people who are trying to, you know, express themselves in that in that profession or in that that artistic field. But I mean, this is this is the trouble. The trouble is maintaining our distinction becomes more and more difficult because we aren't maintaining our distinction. We get we get swept away by the hordes, and you know. You know, I, I see all of these, even these news services on, online and other places. Almost all of them are involved in some sort of get out the vote, get out the native vote campaign. Really? Do you really think that's going to have meaningful impact in our lives? I mean, do you really think having a native judge in Oklahoma is going to be good for us? I mean, wh what happens if that judge rules in our favor on something? 
And right now, and this, this was a story that I heard on the news, the crazy part, since the McGirt decision, which is that ruling by the Supreme Court that, that acknowledged what we have been saying all along, is that Oklahoma never had the, the legal right to claim ownership of the lands that they claimed. So now all of those cases, those criminal cases in Oklahoma, that uh, would normally, in the past, it would have been tried at the state level, now they all have to be tried in federal court. So now these federal judges, and now there will be a one native federal judge, she's going to hear, have to hear, there's a, like hundreds and hundreds of these backlogged um, uh, criminal cases that the federal courts have to hear rather than the state courts because of the McGirt decision. If people want to talk about, well, what's the downside? Well, I don't know that it's a downside. I'm just saying that that's, that's the cause and effect. So we'll, we'll see what, what some of that truly means. But when a Native person sits on the bench, there's always going to be some scrutiny. Is her Native identity going to bias her towards the ruling? Is it going to impact her ruling? Nobody's ever going to say that about a white guy or even a black judge at this point. Maybe they will to a black judge. But you damn sure know they're going to say it about they a Native would. judge. If that Native judge rules more leniently towards an, a Native defendant, or more harshly towards a non-native defendant, especially if that non-native defendant has committed a crime against a native person, is that going to is somebody going to be evaluating whether her her native bias you know had a role in it? Well, I will say this: when Diane Humatiwa became a federal judge in uh, in Arizona, she didn't have any problem ruling against native people who were trying to stop a highway from going through their ancestral lands. No. She wasn't going to be caught being uh, accused of being biased. So how did that work out for us? How did having a native judge who should have understood and not necessarily been biased, but, but should have had a greater understanding about the connection that native people have towards land? Nope. She wasn't even going to consider that. She, you know, as a judge, you know, and, and that's the crazy part. We're led to believe that everything is based on rule of law, that all you have to do is look at the precedents before you and make a ruling on that. Well, if it were that simple, then you wouldn't even need judges. The fact of the matter is, some of those precedents are wrong. Most of them are wrong. Why? Because when it comes to Native people, and I say it all the time, and I'm going to continue to pound this thing, U.S. policy is not based on rule of law. It's based on authoritarian rule. The Indian Citizenship Act, why was it necessary? Because they hadn't effectively taken us over yet. The Indian Citizenship Act was a, a, one other piece of that attempt to do so. Not based on constitutional law. No, the Constitution clearly said we weren't a part of it. That's what the U.S. Constitution said. And even the 14th Amendment Made it clear that we weren't part of it. So 1924, they tried to, nope, boom, you're an American citizen. Stamped on our foreheads forever. Well, I'm sorry, not mine. So, again, I, I, uh, this is all stuff that is worth talking about. And it's, and it's worth having a conversation about. And I don't need to be the only one to have this conversation. So I'm hoping as people hear this show, Native and non-Native, I hope you'll have a deeper conversation about these things. And I hope 
one day soon, as I hope to hit the road a little bit after spring breaks and get uh, get out there, but that we can meet in person and we can have some of these conversations. And and, and my platform for, for engaging people expands. I you know, Look, radio's fine. Podcasts are fine. Facebook and YouTube are good. But that's not the same thing as having a conversation. So I want to thank you for listening to this program. I would really like to thank you for taking the information here and furthering the conversation. And I'm hoping that conversation makes it back to me. I hope, it may, I hope we have a conversation that loops back around, embraces more people, and, and it increases the understanding and the idea that we as Native people do not have to be put firmly and neatly into the box that U.S. citizenship creates or that the government tries to create. That's, that's my hope. My hope is that we can, we can be a little bit more open-minded, that a people who predate the existence of the United States have the right to post-date the United States as well. I want to thank you for listening. Again, support WBAI and WPFW. These uh, fine stations give me a platform, and they allow me to do the radio show that I do put up as a podcast, that I do stream live on Facebook. Uh, I think I'm off in New York next week, uh, but I'll be, uh, in fact, I'm doing an event next week. Uh, I'll talk to you more about it. Maybe I'll even be able to post that uh, for next week as well. Uh, But I will. Washington, I'm coming. I'll be there next week. So thanks for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.